0: And I'm glad all of you are here today. Um, today's good. Hopefully, hopefully be an interesting, encouraging message. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me in a word of prayer as we dig into what we've got ready for today. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning you become the revealer of truth, the encourager for our soul, the one who holds us up when emotionally we may be feeling down. Be the one to speak, to encourage, enlighten us. And I pray today that there'll be lots of good news coming out of what you've prepared in my heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Encounters with God. How people responded. Uh, a couple weeks back, oops, can I have the clicker or are we, uh, are we there yet? Give me one second. Yep, I have control. There we go. Do you remember this movie? Anybody remember Encounters of the Third Kind? Yep, well, I kind of hijacked it. Did God Encounters of the Third Kind, Contact? And it wasn't until I saw one of the trailers to the movie that I realized, oh, okay, there's a first encounter was one thing, the second encounter was something else, and the third was Contact. And you know what? It's... It's a parallel of the biblical story. Jesus making contact face-to-face, uh, touching with humans. He became man. It was a, a wild thing. But and that's just a rabbit trail that was kind of cool. It has nothing really to do with the sermon, but yet it's a bridge. Because what we've been talking about the last number of weeks is what happens when we encounter the real God, the real one. Um A couple weeks back, we talked about what what does God think of us? I grew up in a system of religion where, um, well, I had to perform for God. I had to behave properly in order to be accepted by him, only to find out many, many years later, he liked me and loved me all along. I just had no idea. It messed up a lot of stuff in my head and how I saw him, viewed him. So unlearning that. So we've been, we dug into a bunch of really awesome texts in Scripture that reveals how God sees us, how he sees us right now, how he's always seen us. So go back and watch those if you haven't yet. Um, and then, how did God react to certain individuals? So we looked at some key stories and his reaction to how people treated him and responded to him. Now we're taking a look at what are people's responses to God when they really encounter him. And last week we took a look at David predominantly and how transparent he was in in kind of venting to God and expressing all of his emotions and his soul and bearing it all out. And yet he still had something at the core of himself. He knew he could be honest with God and still understood God to be there in the middle of his stuff. So today... I want to take a look at some encounters, and this was the very first one I thought of when I thought of this series of what what can our responses be to this living God? If I take a look at our Christian culture today here in the West, sometimes you wonder, is God actually still doing anything? Nobody seems to be excited, you know, like we come to church and put on our plastic smiles and sing songs with great expressions on our face. Oh, great is our God. Oh, how great is our God. Sing with me. How great. So what is going on that people are not responding to God with the same excitement that we can find in Scripture? So I want to show us I want to dig into some of those practical, first-hand experiences people had. And then the question each of us can ask ourselves, it's not a guilt trip, it's a reality check. How are we responding? Have we forgotten how good this God is that we say we believe in? Or have we had a false concept of him and need to unlearn that and discover a relational God who wants to connect with us? That's my goal. Here's a story in Luke 17. I'm going to read it for you. Luke 17, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open them up. Or you can trust me that I'm actually reading what's on the page. (laughs) All right, verse uh, 11. As Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, ten lepers stood at a distance crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, their leprosy disappeared. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, Praise God, I'm healed! It only says it once. I bet you he said it multiple times, not just once. you get the picture? I I think so. He fell face down on the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. So not only only did he have leprosy, which was you're ostracized completely. You were not allowed to be near anyone. He was also a Samaritan that the Jews couldn't stand because they're like half-breeds in a weird mixed race group of people, and oh, that was forbidden. So here's like a, one of the lowest of lows as far as being respected by the Jews. He comes back and says, thank you. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten? Where are the other nine? Does only this foreigner return to give glory to God? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. This man encounters the living Jesus, the real one. You see, the system of religion, the Jewish culture, was supposed to be the representatives of God in the world. That's what the Jewish culture was. That's what the system of sacrifice, the temple, it was to be the grandiose, this is where God resides. If you want to meet the living God, you have to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, because that's where his presence was, in the little tiny spot called the holiest of holies. And only once a year does one guy get to go in there after he's been super purified, follow all the rules, and he has to get voted in. And you're only, well, very, very few get to do that. Then there's this outer court and where... Priests can go, and then there's a section where only Jews can go, and then there's this one section for Gentiles, non-Jews. But that is what the representation of who God was. So this Samaritan had been exposed to a perspective of God being in that place, controlled by rules and systems. That is what the world saw who God was. Can you see it? What do you think the world sees today? Same thing, maybe, in some ways. Oh, we have the real God over here at our church. After all, 44,000 different denominations can't all be wrong. It's a lot. So, it's interesting, the perspective he had. And yet, he encounters the real Jesus and look what happens. There is an authentic thank you that comes from him. When he sees he's been healed, he's been given a great gift, and we see it on the, and we heard it in the text, he runs to Jesus, throws himself at his feet and says, "Thank you, thank you, thank you." Are we a thankful people? Is Thanksgiving a natural byproduct of our relationship with God? Are we thankful for everything we do have? Are we thankful for our friendships? Do we take things for granted? You can make your own list. We all do. But perhaps we can visit this story and go, wow, um, there are some things I've really taken for granted. Holy Spirit, what should I be thankful for? Watch the ideas come flooding and watch it change your whole heart, your whole emotional attitude, your whole balance. It'll change you. It's powerful. So that's one story. The next one is the story of a paralyzed man in Luke 5. So Luke chapter 5. This is a pretty cool, bold story. One day, while Jesus was teaching, some of the Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all of Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. What an interesting line. When men came carrying... Oh, by the way, let's go back to the line. Listen to this again. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. I just realized that... Well, we've talked about this several times, but if you didn't realize this, the man Jesus was fully God, fully man. 100%, 100%. It was while Jesus was living on earth, he chose not to live out of his divinity, playing the God card. Because growing up, I always wondered, how did Jesus do that? And, well, of course he didn't sin because he knew he's, he's God. He's not going to, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I always thought playing the God card was his easy out. That's why I'm nothing like Jesus and Jesus is nothing like me. That's what I thought. But Jesus was actually living. As you and I are to live, abiding in his Father. So his Father was living through him, speaking through him, healing through him. In fact, in the book of Acts it says, it was God doing miracles through Jesus. It wasn't Jesus the man doing the miracles. It was God doing it through him. It was pretty cool. So maybe that's what that line could mean. Kind of cool. Some men carried, uh, carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat, they tried to push through the crowd to Jesus. But they couldn't reach him. So they went up on the roof, took off some of the tiles, and lowered the sick man down into the crowd, still on his mat, right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. What a weird thing to say when this guy's dangling down in front of you. I thought he would have said, get up and get healed. That's what he was doing, right? He was speaking and healing and all that. But to say this, it's bizarre. Well, keep in mind, Jesus fully knew who was in the crowd. There were religious leaders ready to nail him. And sure enough, the very next sentence in verse 21, who does this man think he is? The Pharisees and teachers of of the religious law said to each other, this is blasphemy. Who but God can forgive sins? Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you think this is blasphemy? Is it easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? I will prove that I, the Son of Man, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, take your mat, go home, because you are healed. Immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped to his feet, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe. And they praised God, saying, over and over again, we have seen amazing things. (sighs) Reaction. The very first thing the man did after he was healed was what? Do you remember? It was a millisecond, two words. He praised God. He praised God. Now, if you look at the story a little bit, you, I, I'm wondering, Jesus told him to go home. Pick up your mat and go home. He's teaching a crowd of people. Wouldn't you want to just sit down and, and take in from this guy who just healed you? You wouldn't want to be away from him. I don't know. Very strange. Maybe the meeting was just ended. I don't know. And everyone was dismissed because maybe the final prayer had happened. I don't know. But this is a reaction to someone who is healed. Praising God. Do we often thank God and praise God when a blessing comes our way? When a tax break comes, when an extra paycheck shows up, or when something goes well for us, do we give God thanks, or do we say, oh, about time? (laughs) Do you recognize your source? of all that you and I have is the living Christ who dwells in us. He's the source. Giving thanks, it's just a beautiful picture. It's an encounter. I want to read to you a story called The Calf Path. Uh, Steve McVeigh read this years ago and heard it again recently. And this is going to dovetail into the next person's story we're going to look at. But there's a bit of a lesson here, because you and I have grown up in a Western religious culture, and some of us have been in church since we were a little kids. Some of you, this is all new. You've only been in church recently, and you don't have all the baggage. Let's read this, and you'll, you'll get what I mean. One day through the primeval wood, a calf walked home, as good calves should, but made a trail all bent and askew, a crooked trail as all calves do. Since then, three hundred years have fled, and I infer the calf is dead, but still he left behind his trail, and thereby hangs my moral tale. The trail was taken up the next day by a lone dog that passed that way, and then a wise bellwether sheep pursued the trail over vale and steep, and drew the flock behind him too, as good bellweathers always do. And from that day, o'er the hill and glade, through those old woods, a path was made. And many men wound in and out, and dodged and turned and bent about, and uttered words of righteous wrath, because t'was such a crooked path. But they still followed, do not laugh, the first migrations of the calf. And through this winding woodway stalked, because he wobbled when he walked, This forest path became a lane that bent and turned and turned again. This crooked lane became a road where many a poor horse with his load toiled on beneath the burning sun and traveled some three miles in one. And thus, a century and a half, they trod the footsteps of the calf. The years passed on in swiftness fleet. The road became a village street, and this, before men were aware, a city's crowded through fair. And soon the central street was this of a renowned metropolis, and men two centuries and a half trod in the footsteps of that calf. Each day, a hundred thousand route followed that zigzag calf about, and o'er this crooked journey went the traffic of a continent, a hundred thousand men were led by one calf near three centuries dead. They followed. They follow still his crooked way and lose one hundred years a day for thus such reverence is lent to all well-established precedent. A moral lesson this might teach were I ordained to call to pr- or called to preach. For men are prone to go it blind along the calf's path of the mind. And work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in beaten track and out and in and forth and back, and still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. They keep the path a sacred groove along which all their lives they move. But how the wise old wood gods laugh who saw the first primeval calf. Ah! Many things this tale might teach, but I'm not ordained to preach. By Samuel Walter Foss. I hope those aren't all blank stares. (laughs) What was that long poem? (laughs) If you didn't get it, (laughs) we carve out paths in our mind. We're taught certain things from growing up. We teach our children certain things, and that becomes their truth. Then they hit this stage called teen, teenager, and everything gets questioned. All the stuff you taught, everything is why. Prove it, why. It happens. It happens in faith too. And each of us have been led down spiritual paths, taught what to believe and never question. Sometimes there isn't room to question, and yet I think sometimes... (laughs) <laughs> there are things we need to question, and we never have. We're gonna inter- I'm going to introduce you to a guy right now that had a path carved out for him, set up by religion. And he was good at it. He was amazing at it, but it was carved in solid, and there was no budging, and he knew every little rule. We're going to take a look at the story of Paul as he ends up having an unbelievable encounter with the real Jesus. This is a man who had just asked permission to go and bring home and beat up and whip and persecute and kill Christians. And all the religious leaders who were in charge of the God picture gave him permission to go do it. He was sent by the false God, the one that everybody believed to be the real God, but was horribly misrepresented. That's why Jesus came, to correct the false understanding. So here's Paul, on his way to Damascus, ready to capture a lot of people. And this guy's reputation was growing fast. So we're in Acts 9. Where are we here? Oops. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. He was eager to destroy the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. They weren't called Christians. They were called the way Just so you know, anybody who believed in Jesus and uh, were technically Christians, they, they were called the way instead. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. He was nearing Damascus on his mission. A brilliant light from heaven suddenly beamed down upon him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, sir? Saul asked. The voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men with Saul stood speechless with surprise, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one that'd freak you and me out too, okay? Just saying, all right? They're just writing it nicely. If it was written in today's language, it'd be much more colorful. I promise you that. Uh, Okay. As Saul picked himself up off the ground, he found that he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days. All that time he went without food and water. Stop there for a moment. Do you think this encounter is going to impact Saul? Absolutely. Knocked off your horse by a bright light, you're suddenly blind, you hear voices in your head. Oh, wait, those weren't voices in my head, that was exterior voices, and everybody around heard it too. You can't hide from this. Something is up. And then he has three days to ponder. We struggle and we have to wait half an hour for anything. Three days. Back to back to back. And he, he doesn't know how many days. He doesn't know if it's going to be weeks. He has no clue. He's, he's a blind guy. Where are we here? Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street. Interesting. Imagine Paul being on a crooked path. I don't know. You could can, can really hammer this one up. Okay. Go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you arrive, ask for Saul of Tarsus. He is praying to me right now. Ooh, doo, doo. How would you like that? You know, uh, God's looking down, going on, Hey, Ananias! This guy, Paul, praying to me right now, so you're going to go over and talk to him. I got this plan set up. Yeah, he's talking to me right now, like right now. <laughs> I think he stopped in three days. <clears throat> All right. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming and laying his hands on him so that he can see again. So Ananias clearly realizes this is God talking to him, right? You got that? If it was you or I, we'd go, Oh, yes, Lord, anything you say. But nope, Ananias says, But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And we hear that he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest every believer in Damascus. Okay, he's scared. That's what he's saying. He's like, Really? Do you know who this guy is? He, he obviously didn't listen fully because Jesus said, I have shown him a vision of a man in Ananias. This is going to (laughs) happen. But he rebutted. And you know what? That's the beauty of God, the beauty of Christ. And we saw it with David. We see it here in a very practical form. We are allowed to have an honest conversation, expressing our concerns, our worries. And this does not mean doubt. It's being human. God, help me wrestle through this. We're allowed to do this. Okay, does that make sense? I, hope, I, I thought it was great. But the Lord said, Go and do what I say. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to, the, and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for me. So Ananias went and found Saul. Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me that you may get your sight back and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. After, he ate some food and was strengthened. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Uh, isn't that the same man who persecuted Jesus' followers with such devastation in Jerusalem, they asked? And we understand he came here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Sounds like a setup. Hmm. Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, the Jewish leaders decided to kill him, but Saul was told about their plot, and they were watching him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. So during the night, some of the other believers let him down a large basket through an opening in the city wall. You can read more yourself later but we have a serious, serious encounter. Here's a man so steeped in his cow path that he didn't even know how the cow path originated, but in his mind, it was set up. It was set up to how, this is how we function. You see, if you don't have to think, you just follow rules, it means you don't have to think. You just do. It's easier to follow rules because there's no thought involved. You just do what it says and be blindly into it. Whereas with Christ, everything's different. We're not under rules. We're called into relationship with Jesus so that we learn to listen to him. He will give us instructions. He will tell us what to do, but not as something heavy and burdensome. He'll speak to us from a place of rest. A guy named Dave Carringer wrote this recently. Why did Paul disappear for three years? You see, after this, he hid away. Three years. He stayed wherever he was, and God was teaching him things. Not any man was teaching him. Let me read this for you. Ever wonder why Paul disappeared for three years and didn't confer with flesh and blood, meaning other men, regarding what he was seeing? What if Paul was being awakened to see the groove men dig for themselves when bombarded with the same traditional thoughts, ideas, and doctrines of men passed down from birth? What if Paul realized he had become one of the ringleaders regurgitating the same thoughts of those before him, doing it with such zeal, he actually he had actually become a master groove maker who, with great intentions, had passionately placed others in that same deep track of traditional thinking past to him? What if one day Paul got knocked off his traditional high horse, suddenly becoming unable to any longer see the things he had believed, taught or been a part of, leading him to a great removal of visionary scales, resulting in brand new eyes, now clearly showing him the teachings he had followed and taught in in sincere passion, that they were sincerely wrong. What if the Christ within was showing Paul he hadn't been merely preaching a variation of God's message to man, but had come face-to-face with the reality of heaven who showed him he'd actually been kicking against the truth of all those passionate, groove-making years? Paul was so obviously and radically changed when he emerged from hearing and seeing the Christ within, he was lambasted by former friends and colleagues even being beaten and left as dead, only to boldly stand up again and say, I am not ashamed of this good news, for in it the righteousness of God for all men is revealed. A shift so radically changing Paul's mindset that his mission became preaching Christ in the Gentiles, the whole world apart from the Jews. Hmm. Something happened. He had a true encounter with the real Jesus, not a religious one. He'd been a professional in religion, the system of doing things in order to become. Now, again, I'll say this because I used to say religion only means, you know, it's a system of rules binding you up. Because the word religion comes from Latin religare, which does mean to bind up. However, in its proper understanding, the way it was intended to be understood, it had to do with common beliefs that we share together, that we are in common, that bind us together. That's kind of what it's supposed to do. But what's happened, all the rules now have become a system of religion. Trying to get God to like us or maintain likeness, get forgiven, stay forgiven, all that stuff. And it was all hogwash. Jesus came to abolish religion. Came to abolish it. Introduce life instead because religion cannot give life. Jesus does. Big difference. Big difference. Galatians 1. This is really important. Here's why he changed and how he encountered the real Jesus. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Stop there. Remember, he did not go visit Paul, or sorry, Peter and John. Hey guys, like share your notes with me. Let's, okay. Oh, is that how you saw that? Okay. Hey Mark, what was that medical thing that Jesus had done? You know, like uh, he didn't do any of that. Or Luke, Luke was the doctor. So he didn't go and consult. He had a direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. This is huge. For neither I received it from man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, if he had consulted with all the other disciples, what's one thing he would have received from all of them? It starts with the letter I. Information. Right? He would have been informed. Right now you're getting information about this. But information can't do anything. Information doesn't change lives. Revelation does Because if you get healthy information, let's say you're given a diagnosis of something terrible, and if you don't change something immediately, you're in trouble. Well, that's information. If you don't do anything about it, nothing will change. But when you realize, oh my goodness, uh, uh, there's some big trouble coming if I don't make this course correction immediately and you do something, that is a revelation that happens inside. Jesus became his revelation and revealed to him so much about who he really was. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for for my ancestral traditions. Traditions. Do you realize a lot of our traditions are the cow path? A lot of them are. I remember a Brethren in Christ bishop, he said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditional ism is the dead faith of the living. I've never forgotten that. I don't ever want to get caught in traditional ism. We do it just because. I think that was one of the first gifts Hope Fellowship gave me when I came here is through Rod. You know, the, the rules are here to serve. When they cease to serve, we change the rules. Because you need structure and guidelines. That's true. But those rules have nothing to do with our relationship with God, whether we're acceptable or not. They're for governing how we get along as people. But the freedom from it, oh my goodness, that was it's huge. So He was so steeped in that tradition. But when God, listen to this, you got to see it, you can look it up in your own Bible, go Google it, compare multiple translations, and go to the original Greek, and you'll find this. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased, here it is, to reveal his son in me. Not to. Some translations will mis- misrepresent that. They'll say, to me. It's a revelation. Paul had Christ revealed in him. Do you guys remember Red Shoot's testimony a little bit, where he was uh, constantly told that he has to make Christ the center of his life by religious leaders in his church and his own family. And he was made to feel like he wasn't doing it dutifully. He was a less of a Christian because he couldn't do it right and he was struggling. And suddenly one day in his depression, he heard a voice speak to him, however that works. He didn't think it was quite audible, but if, whatever it was, it was not from exterior. It was from inside speaking to him, Christ in him. Huh. And he realized he doesn't have to make Christ the center of his life. Christ was the center of his life and is his very life. I'm hearing more and more of that from individuals. I'm hearing more stories of individuals hearing God speak from inside, not from outside. And then they believe. What the? What, what? No way. And now their life changes because of what's already happened from a light in them. We've talked about that here many times. All right. To reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, who is Paul, or uh, um, uh, sorry, uh, Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. He ends up coming back to Jerusalem, and he shares the gospel with the disciples. <laughs> Do you know how crazy that is? Here are the guys who actually hung out with Jesus. Um, they, they ate with him. They... Saw funky miracles, the water calming, the walking on the water bit, all that stuff. Like the, the guy getting demons cast out and, and putting the herd of pigs and watching all that stuff happen. Like they saw the whole story. And here's Paul, who didn't have any of that, comes and tells them the gospel. They dialogue, they discuss, and they find out, hey, are we telling the same story? If and basically, what ended up happening was Paul had it confirmed they recognized that what Paul had been taught by the Holy Spirit directly, wow, only God can do that. And that's what happened. A man's life was transformed. How has the gospel transformed you or me? Are we even a little bit excited and thankful for the joy that's in us, that Christ is in us? Are we thankful for everything we have? What's our response Moment by moment, day by day, instant by instant. It doesn't happen overnight. It'll take practice to live a life of thanksgiving. This is huge, but here we have Paul encounter directly the man he was persecuting. And his life sure changed. Another example is the disciples. Remember the night that uh, uh, Jesus was taken away by uh, the Roman guards? What did the disciples do? We're 12 committed disciples. We're staying with you, man. No. (laughs) I'm out of here. (laughs) They were gone. They totally took off. So we could say, yeah, look how weak their faith was. They still encountered the real Jesus. And Jesus has a pattern of restoring. He ended up coming back to Peter, who denied him three times, and asked him, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? That's another sermon. That's a really good one. He restored them. And after they saw Jesus alive after his death, they were permanently changed. Every one of them. Something happened because they encountered the full living one that promised to be who he was and it came true. It came to pass. So who is this Jesus you say you believe in? Who is he? You've got to ask yourself that. What have you come to believe about him? Do you think that God or Jesus has any expectations put on to you? If the answer is yes, that's where you start deconstructing. He does not have any expectations on us. He wants us to know him and be loved by him because he knows that when we know we are loved and accepted and valued, then we will be transformed from the inside out and become loving, gracious people. It happens from the inside out. It happens from the renewing of our minds. Encounters with the real Jesus? You betcha. All those Sunday school stories we learned, the stories are good. But the application that we've been told of how to apply them may have been misguided from good intention, from tradition. We don't mess with tradition. Yes, we do. And we will find that some of those traditions are actually good, and some were ooh, 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 that's been in there a long time. You know, you don't want that. This is your personal journey. It's my personal journey. What's next? Oop! We'll stop there. I, I, I think the story of Paul is amazing. If you get a chance, go read his story in the book of Acts. I think it was Acts 9. Let me go back. Acts 9. Go read it. Before and after. It's a really good story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you didn't give us a to-do list of how we are to react to you or to the good news. So Father, I pray you show each of us where we may have just become numb in our emotions about who you are, have taken for granted the joy of the salvation within us. May we find that joy again. May we become individuals who learn to experience Christ in us in a profound way and to be impacted by you, which will then impact others. Thank you, Jesus. Be the revealer of truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.